Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, this is a terribly exciting week, Wendy. Oh, man. I'll tell you, there's three reasons why I'm excited. Number one, we have a Patreon hangout scheduled for Tuesday, April 10th. That's right. So if you are part of the Patreon community, make sure you get back to us uh, or give the thumbs up or whatever or respond to the invites so we know you're coming. Hopefully you can make it. Otherwise, we will have another one very soon. And, you know, let us know your preferred day for that because... We care about you and we want you to be there. Yes, so we do. we will schedule it around you. So that's the first thing that's very exciting. So April 10th is already, I am I am bursting at the seams with excitement. <sighs> we have so much to talk about. But it's about also too. Friday the 13th is on <laughs> Friday and everybody loves a good Friday the 13th. They sure do. That's right. So um, Friday the 13th this April is especially exciting because we are releasing our brand new CD, The Wonders of the Invisible World, that day in Madison. Yay. So if you guys are anywhere near Madison... Come to the show. It's going to be awesome. And then you can find out more about that. Sunspotmusic.com slash tickets is where you can pick up your ticket. You get a copy of the new CD and a t-shirt, the whole deal for uh, 20 bucks. Swag bag, baby. So that's the (laughs) other thing we're really excited about. New music coming right this Friday and Patreon hangout this week. And we got some appearances coming up on terrestrial radio. So if you're not into the podcasting, world and just have like a, a dial like a maybe old transistor radio will appear on your old transistor radio as well we will yes yeah and if you don't have that you can always tune in through the interwebs radio so we have like there's just a ton of stuff going on this week so that's the first couple of reasons i'm excited yay and Ooh. the next reason i'm excited is that our guest for the show today is the first member of the rock and roll hall of fame we've had on the show whoa Hopefully not the last. Yes, hopefully not the last. Ho- but very exciting. Hopefully some more members of the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame uh, have paranormal stories they can share with us. Because certainly Gary Lackman does. Now, the thing is, Gary's name when he was a full-time rocker in the 70s in New York, it was Gary Valentine. Ah, oh, okay. So he went by Gary Valentine, and he was the original bass player of the band Blondie. He wrote their first top 10 hit. And he also was the guitar player for Iggy Pop for a couple of years. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. And his band was called The No. We get into a lot of that in the interview. But it's just, it's just really exciting because I was introduced to uh, Gary's books, I don't know, about 15 years ago. And his writing on the occult is just fascinating. His book, The Secret History of Consciousness, I really was like, wow, I'd never thought about these things before. And he really introduced a uh, non-materialist perspective into my reading world. Well, I'm really excited now to hear what he yes. has to say. So, so why don't we go straight to the interview? Yeah, we got to jump in. Okay, here's Gary. Gary Lackman is a writer and researcher with an extraordinary appreciation for the occult and the Western esoteric tradition, a biographer of Helena Blavatsky, Emanuel Swedenborg, and our favorite, holy moly, it's Alastair Crowley. Lackman has helped to find just how these iconoclastic thinkers have influenced prevailing culture. A Secret History of Consciousness and a Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, and his upcoming Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, in some ways seem to be a roadmap to human betterment. Gary, thanks for joining us today. I know that my sister hopes you can give us some practical tips for how we can evolve into a higher state of being. 
And so <laughs> that's that's what we're here to talk about today. Uh, Gary, welcome from London. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you and so much, Gary. How's the weather in London today? Oh, uh, it's, actually, it's actually all right. Um, we had a lot of rain over the Easter week. Uh, had some, some sun the last two days, but it's got quite mild. So it's, it's pretty warm for this time of year here. And uh, it's not bad. If it's not raining, it's a good day. But it I, I was just there last week and it is beautiful. It is green oh. and like mossy and there's flowers, like yes. big Yes. Flowers. We have yeah, no a, flowers over here in Wisconsin. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to send some over. After Brexit, we can make a special deal. Oh, thank <laughs> That's you. Right. That's so kind. Wisconsin. We'll have to make uh, individual you, deals uh, with Wisconsin. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, pr- uh, premium, premium uh, price on all of those flowers. So, yeah. <laughs> Now, the reason I was, I was saying about London, Gary, is that you are in the UK, but I don't hear an English accent. So well, where are you from originally? Well, I'm, I, I grew up in the States. I mean, obviously, I, I lived, uh, I've been living here for about 22 years, but um, I uh, grew up in New Jersey, uh, just across the Hudson from Manhattan. Um, and um, then I, I lived in New York for a while. And then I lived in Los Angeles for um, several years. So I, I moved here in 1996. And um, I mean, friends tell me I've my sort of way of pronounce, uh, pronouncing some words and uh, just general kind of, you know, speech has changed a bit. But I, I, I don't I don't feel I've, I've got an English accent. I mean, some some people have called it mid-Atlantic so, ah. <laughs> well, it, it's very sophisticated know. for us Wisconsin Polacks, so oh, we well, appreciate uh, it. Well, I'm I'm I, I'm a New Jersey um, Polak and and Irish. <laughs> hey, so, all right. You know, um, believe me, it's not. I mean, I, I think often when I sort of just talk um, and uh, I'm not self conscious about it, you you can hear the Jersey accent come in there. So. A little bit. And we want to talk, uh, starting out with, you know, growing up in New Jersey and, and, you know, growing up in the middle of the, of the 20th century, how did you, how did you get into this stuff? Like, mm. what was your introduction? Um, did, did something happen to you? Did you have an experience? <laughs> what well, not, did something so happen weird? to you? Did <laughs> your mom drop you on your <laughs> head? Like, what happened to me? I don't know if we have enough time to go into all of them. Um, but, um, no, I mean, how I got interested in, in uh, what I'm writing about, um, uh, which is, I guess you can call it the Western esoteric tradition, um, it started in 1975, and that's when I was a musician then. I was I was playing in um, uh, Blondie, this, but before uh, Blondie became very, very you know, famous, this is um, sort of the early, the, the pre-punk days. It wasn't called punk, punk rock yet. But this was in New York... Um, and I was living with um, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein uh, in this sort of dilapidated kind of loft space on the Bowery. Uh, and this was uh, a block away from the big uh, club, uh, CBGB, the bar where yes. people like Ramones and Patti Smith and Talking television. Heads and television and, you know, all, all of that um, – uh, were, were becoming known there. And um, they had a kind of kitschy – you know, fun interest in kind of the occult and, you know, Satanism and they'd have, you know, sort of pentagrams and candles and upside down crosses. And, you know, uh, you know, it, it was more sort of a aesthetic, uh, not, not, not a real kind of serious pursuit of it. And I hadn't been interested in that sort of thing. And then it also, um, in this loft space, uh, well, this it was three floors. It was a big, it's still there actually. It's one of the few buildings on the Bowery that hasn't got gentrified and 
turned into some you know overpriced uh, hotel or apartment complex. Right. But um, this uh, flamboyant uh, wild artist um, who was very much into Alistair Crowley's um, tarot, uh, he had a one of the Toth tarot decks that um, at the time were still. They were still fairly rare, um, and he had one of those, and he, he did these sort of pa- paintings, these big paintings sort of based on those, and he would do impromptu tarot readings. And there were also just other – there was sort of like this kind of cultural debris from the previous generation, uh, a lot of books from the 60s and um, you know the counterculture and things of that sort. And there was a big occult revival in the 1960s. My first book, Turn Off Your Mind, is uh, about the, uh, the occult revival of the 1960s. And um, – I started reading stuff by Crowley and about Crowley, but the book that really made the uh, big inf- big impact on me and pretty much set me on the road to what I'm doing now is a book that was simply called The Occult, and that was by a British author named Colin Wilson, um, who died a few years ago. Uh, and um, it was uh, Wilson r- wrote quite a bit, uh, quite a bit, and actually, um, mm-hmm. I, I much later on, I, uh, I, I wrote a book about him. It was called Beyond the Robot: Life and Work of Colin Wilson. But in the occult, it wasn't um, you know a collection of ghost stories or um, sort of spells or that kind of thing. He he took it seriously, and um, he was trying to understand it in terms of philosophy and in, uh, also in psychology and in, in terms of um, a kind of philosophy of consciousness. And it was through reading that book and getting very interested at the time in, in the um, it, it was if you were interested in sort of the occult and the paranormal, the mid seventies to the late seventies, mm-hmm. early eighties was a, actually a classic time because there was a great many books, uh, both new stuff coming out and then uh, a lot of um, cheap re- reprints. Um, so at that time in New York, there used to be a great bookshop called Weiser's that was over in uh, sort of uh, uh, kind of the East Village. But then all of the main sort of uh, bookshops would have uh, these sort of occult sections and a lot of the stuff were discounted. So it was it was old uh, books from say the 19th century or the early 20th century that were out of copyright and could be you know reprinted cheaply. So you found all this kind of stuff. So it was a fantastic time. And I just, you know, what started out as a naive kind of enthusiasm over the many years became, um, I guess, more or less kind of serious study uh, of it. Well, a couple of things there that, that you got me, first of yeah. all. Number one, when we think about uh, Satanism as an aesthetic, we always think about the early 1980s, like hair metal, oh, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Everything from Ozzy's Mr. You know, Mr. Crowley yeah. uh, to like Motley Crue having like on their Shout at the Devil album, like a, like a satanic altar yeah, in, yeah. Their, in their album art. So it's funny, you know, that's just a, another way you guys were trendsetting uh, in that using uh, the occult as an aesthetic in the new wave movement. And what I, you know, when you guys were working together, did you, did you have any idea that it was going to have such a, you know, a big impact well, on well, art? It, and it really wasn't and something that was kind of part of the Blondie thing. It was something that they, that Debbie and Chris is kind of, it was kind of just stuff that was around, you know, like, uh, you know, there's uh, people just have lots of weird kind of stuff. I mean, it was just sort of part of um, a general kind of cultural kind of bric-a-brac that they had. So, I mean, around the same time, like this loft space, um, in a book I wrote called New York Rocker, uh, My Life in the Blank Generation, I talk about my years with Blondie and then subsequently with other, my own band and then playing with Iggy Pop. But in this space, it was sort of, you'd have a, you know, uh, some of Chris's photographs and then maybe you'd have a pentagram somewhere. Then there was the, the Velvet Underground album cover and then, you know, 
some painting. So it was just it was it wasn't like a central thing. And in the Blondie kind of you know image, it really wasn't part of it. I mean, later on, I think Debbie Debbie and Chris got it because they became friends with um, H.R. Giger, uh, the fellow who did the uh, sets Alien. for Alien, and he he's very much into you know it's kind of a, a, a cult sort of dark fantasy kind of thing. I mean, the one thing that was a Blondie. Uh, product was my, my song I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear which was about the, the sort of uh, kind of telepathic experiences I was having with my girlfriend at the time when we would have we would, we would wind up ha- sort of being in each other's dreams or you know synchronicities would happen, we'd, we'd, we'd call each other when the other was just about to call you know the other one and so on and so on so I did a song about that um, but um, it, it, it became sort of it really wasn't sort of part of the thing in the sense that like in the 60s and as you say in the 80s you, you did have a lot of uh bands that were um kind of using a lot of occult imagery or uh it was part of the image but the 70s thing in new york was kind of reaction against a lot of you know the the prior mm-hmm. sort of ways of doing so it was something that you know it was more like my own kind of thing it wasn't although i have to say when when i left blondie i, I started my own band um, it was called the No uh, K N O W, and that mm. was taken from my interest in um, Gnosticism. Uh, and Gnosticism is one uh-huh. of the uh, sort of ancient um, uh, religions or spiritual teachings that uh, forms part of the root of you know what we call the Western esoteric tradition. And uh, Gnosis in Greek means uh, knowledge. And Gnosticism is a basically a kind of spiritual. Uh, uh, belief that was based on one having one's own immediate kind of uh, experience of 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 this other other planes, whatever you want to call them, the religious mystical experience, rather than taking things on faith and on dogma. So I mean, so in well, we we talked about the mystery religions. I'm saying my own kind of trajectory. It, it it was something that became more kind of, but I I personally myself, I never got into the real kind of loud kind of explicit, you know expression of it that you get in, in the heavy metal bands. It was it was all kind of muted um, for myself. But uh, I, I think what happened with that was that at the end of the 60s, you see um, you know, bands like Black Sabbath and and others, they kind of take that aspect of the occult, the kind of dark, you know, more satanic or Luciferian, whatever you want to call it. And that, that became one kind of genre. And then sort of the lighter, more, I don't know, um, meditative sorts of things you know that uh, that went in a different direction so sure well can we get one example of your uh it sounds like you and your girlfriend did have radar love you wrote a song about yeah. it like what 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 was one example uh, that you guys had oh i mean i, I, I it, it's, it's such a long time ago it's 40 years ago so i mean i it was just that sort of thing where um we would you know find out that we had a similar dream or we would uh we we well back then this is before you know uh, cell phones and all this kind of thing or the internet. And so you had to sort of figure out a way to get free calls. And there was a way that we, we figured out using a phone box that was <laughs> outside the hotel when I was first staying here. Um, as I'm saying, the, um, uh, uh, or, or when we were on tour, you know, uh, that was the sort of thing. We were uh, the first tour, the tour of the States, um, we were opening for Iggy Pop, uh, Blondie. And it was during that tour that, um, it would just, um, as I said, I can't remember a specific kind of thing, but it was that general kind of thing where uh, you're about to call the person and then they're calling you or, you know, um, something along those lines. So um, 
I'm sorry, I can't be more specific, but it is uh, like 40 years ago. Yeah, that's okay. Um, (laughs) I I wanted to ask you uh, a couple of questions um, that were written into us. um, And some of the things have kind of come up already that uh, people had questions about. So um, my friend um, and fellow Mothman, Chicago Mothman investigator, uh, Jack Blue, had a a question about um, occult symbology in rock and roll either then or now and you know whether you know because there's there are certainly fringes uh that say you know there is some kind of occult underground there's some you know like the illuminati or something Uh, that is trying to actively manifest uh things and that's the reason for the symbology Uh, you know or is it just like kind of brick brack as you were saying just just kind of uh trappings of um you know like a revolutionary spirit of going mm-hmm. against the old i mean mm-hmm. wh- wh- what do you think is there any reality uh, well, I, I don't, well i'm personally i'm i'm not you know uh i don't think there's a, an illuminati in the way that you know you you hear a lot about it or see a lot about it on the net and i know uh and i have to say i'm i'm not <laughs> i'm i'm pretty much out of touch with contemporary pop music and all that although um in a book I did about Crowley called Alistair Crowley, magic rock and roll and the wickedest man in the world. There's a, there's a good chapter on the end of the book about sort of Crowley's ongoing um, career as, as a kind of rock and roll icon. And then he's also been picked up by rap, you know, Jay-Z and people like that and, you know, rap singers. And um, I don't know. I, I, I personally don't think there's any kind of real, um, you know, secret cabal of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, rock and roll or you know whatever entertainers uh celebrities and other people politicians and bankers and all that but uh um there in that world i think uh there's a real interest in symbols of power and symbols of being exclusive and um sort of the elite and that kind of thing um my own experiences when i was in the music world is um the couple people that you know uh I, I knew or had met um, that expressed a real interest in it. You know, um, it was more, you know, uh, a little bit more than faddish, but not, not, you know, not particularly deep. And when they really sort of serious study is something that has interests them. And so they read, you know, I mean, there's a story I, I tell in my book, New York Rocker, about uh, basically getting asked to leave David Bowie's loft space in Midtown Manhattan sometime in, 1980 because we had a disagreement about Colin Colin Wilson and uh, again he was a very popular British writer and uh, I some I mean it's not he wasn't somebody I hung out with all the time Bowie but I somehow got invited to right. some kind of uh, gathering at at this uh, you know, place where he was holding court and uh, there was a lull in the conversation and um, uh, someone mentioned that. Um, Somehow Bowie started talking about his interest in the occult or something like that, and someone mentioned that I, I knew all about it because I read Colin Wilson because Wilson you know wrote and by this time I was sort of a real devotee of his of his books and was reading everything about it and um, Bowie started going on about how Wilson was the head of a coven somewhere in Cornwall and how he was trying to manifest sort of you know the spirits of Nazis and all this kind of you know off the wall weird stuff and I just yeah. said well you know David actually it's it's not quite like that. <laughs> And then um, he kept going Uh-oh. on and on, and, and I kept sort of just, you know, sort of gently just saying, well, you know, uh, it's not quite like that. And then eventually his his two uh, female bodyguards um, who were like Bambi and Thumper, and uh, I forget which Bond <laughs> film, which Bond f- 
I think it's uh, Never Say Never Again or one of those Bond films, you know, where they, um, so yes. they came and escorted me out of the out of the place. But the funny thing is that subsequently I came, I came to understand why he was saying those things because I know the book he was reading at the time was a book by Wilson called Mysteries. And actually Wilson tells the story of, um, again, it's not a coven, so Bowie got things all mixed up, but he tells the, he tells the story of this uh, uh, Cambridge sort of um, archaeologist who, uh, a man named T.C. Lethbridge, who in his sort of um, later life, he became very um, deeply interested in the paranormal and uh, witchcraft, and he was studying it in Cornwall and so on and so on. And so I can't go into the details, but basically Bowie had mixed up what Wilson was writing about this guy Lethbridge and sort of just got it into this kind of mishmash. So, I mean, right. I, 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 I think a lot of these people, they, they pick up on it, you know, because it's something that um, they can use. I mean, they're okay. artists, so they, they they can use it for a while, and then right. it loses its kind of interest. And you it's know, just kind uh, of a, a trendy iconoclastic thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I would it's a, think it's a you know, and, of being a rebel. And, and again, like if Madonna is into Kabbalah, that's great. But there's you know thousands of other people who've been into Kabbalah for you know for years and years and years. Right. So I mean, the reason that we know about it with her because she's a celebrity and good. If that if that means that other people will get interested in it, that that's you know that, that's good too. But uh, I'm not trying to sort of minimize their their um, sort of seriousness about it, but you know, uh, oftentimes it's something that's actually you know quite just kind of something that they've got into because it interests them at the time. Right, and we just give them too much gravitas because of their yeah, celebrity. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. It's like Selena Gomez, like saying yeah. she's into the occult. Because <laughs> well, yeah. she's hot yoga well, that's or that's one like of the that. other things. I, I I I don't know. Are the Jonas Brothers? Are they still around? Do they still do anything? But they they were they <laughs> one of. Well, I, I'm just saying, I, when I did this book on Crowley, one of the things that came up and um, was that one of them was into Crowley or he was wearing a kind of Crowley t-shirt. And I, I, I just know them because my sons, when they were young, they used to watch their TV show on the Disney Channel or something. And I thought, okay, if you've got guys on the Disney Channel that are into Crowley, I mean, he can't be really that scary anymore. You know? <laughs> right. Well, that was that was the power of the that that you know you you really hit the nail on the head there where you know people talk yeah. about the Illuminati and obviously Jay Z's a lizard person and I'm glad you said that David Bowie had yeah. that Colin Wilson thing mixed up because now we know that Bowie wasn't a lizard person <laughs> because lizard people wouldn't they wouldn't get that wrong. Oh, there you go. That's the test. <laughs> I have to. Okay, I have to remember it's that. The, now. It's the power. Yeah. The power of this. The power of the symbols that's to right. scare parents. You know, it's the the, the power yeah. of the pentagram that scares Midwestern, you know, uh, <laughs> minivan driving mothers is what made it, you know, scary. It's the, it's the idea that I remember Allison, our mother, when I, in eighth grade, I asked her to buy Number of the Beast <laughs> by <laughs> Iron Maiden. And that's just, a, I mean, and that's just a song about the movie yeah, yeah. Omen 2. Not no, even one bad, of the good Omen film, movies. <laughs> Right, but you know, she, the 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 guy at the music store is like, "Well, it's a there's a lot of great guitar playing on the album, or whatever." And she's like, "Okay," <laughs> but I mean, it's that idea of using the symbology to, and that's a, you know, that's a that's a magical power, not necessarily a magical power, but that's a power in its own right. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, well, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, if you know what you're doing, or oftentimes you just throw it up there, and it it has the effect anyway. But no, I mean, that's one of the things people can use these things they don't necessarily have to be serious devotees or really know too much about them but they know it, it, it can have an effect just like anything anything that's powerful you could use it you don't have to know you know uh, the ingredients for it or how to make it if you know how to turn it on and it works so um, i mean i guess and again that's one of the things i would say that's one of the reasons why you have there's this kind of melange of uh, the occult nazism 
um, weird kind of horror fiction or, I don't know, uh, uh, apocalyptic kind of milieu. And these things all kind of blend together into a kind of general kind of, you know, weird death destruction romanticism kind of thing. And it's it's because they, they generate a very, I mean, the funny thing that no, nobody ever picks up on the hammer and sickle, you know, there's, there's not too many bands that, you know, do a kind of Soviet. Uh, and again, because those, that sim, that symbology is very secular. It's, it's, um, it's nothing really mystical. It's mm-hmm. about, it's the, it's the plow, it's the farmer, the plowman and the, and the sort of the worker. Right. Whereas the, the, the spot stick is some, it's some weird thing. The wizard's you know, not in there. It's some strange thing that goes back, you know, uh, ancient history. It's, uh, you know, the Nazis didn't invent the SWAT sticker. And, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's an ancient symbol. And, and you know, <laughs> funny thing, you, you, you can imagine there must have been some people around the time when, you know, Hitler had appropriated the symbol and was, you know, using it a lot where they were saying, no, 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 this is a good, this is, you know, we, we can't let the symbol be taken over by, you know, this evil force because it's a good one. You know, so you can imagine people trying to sort of, convince people that the swastika wasn't bad, you know, it'd be impossible to do it today. Right. Well, t- talk a little bit more about that misappropriation of symbols mm. or, or reassignment, uh, because, you know, I, I, I think maybe a lot of people don't know about the true origins of the swastika. And, you know, maybe you can also point to, you know, because you have that new book coming out, Dark Star Rising, which I'm really excited, uh, you know, because it addresses this kind of weird period that we're going through now where anything can happen, yeah. it feels like yeah. anyway. And, um, you know, so if you could address the swastika and maybe talk about any symbols that you see or any developments you see going at the mm. direction of being misappropriated. Well, I mean, it's, uh, well, the swastika is an ancient, I mean, it just turns up in all ancient cultures. It turns up in ancient India and turns up in North American uh, Indian as well. So it's it's just something, you know, whether it's a sun wheel or, you know, um, there's a variety of different attempts to you know, say exactly what it is and what its origin was, but just the sense that it's something that's been involved in many, you know, cultures around the world for a long time. And, and it's precisely because of that, that, you know, uh, I think, I think, I think it's road to Hitler was through one of the, um, the Guido van Liest or the, uh, uh, this magazine, he, he was this, um, uh, Austrian, um, well, uh, sort of, Theosophist, but he took some ideas of Madame Blavatsky's theosophy in, into very racial and white supremacist and Aryan. I mean, that was the other thing too. This was, you know, the the whole Aryan, the, the idea of Aryan man and all of that. That's something that started up in the late nineteenth, um, really got going then into the twentieth century and uh, the whole racial uh, idea. Uh, that was another thing that you know uh, fed. Um, the, the the kind of Nazis obviously it was part of the Nazi rise but it was also something that was in the air they they didn't they, they didn't have a monopoly on that put it that way that was something that was kind of in the, the cultural mix at the time uh, but you know the mis- I mean, well the one I write about in in <clears throat> Dark Star Rising um, Dark Star Rising Magic and Power in the Age of Trump is uh, Peppy the Frog. Um, so I don't know if you, if you or your your listeners are aware of Peppy, right but now. you know, it's kind of, all right. So yeah, you know, I know this, who Peppy the Frog uh, is. Started out as this innocuous, you know, amphibian slacker, and then um, became kind of the mascot of the alt right. And the reason I did the, the the book, the sort of the, it's not really inspiration. It's not quite the right word, but um, what had happened is that. Um, 
well, it'll take a, a bit of explaining. But uh, what had happened is that um, if you remember after Trump's um, election, um, there's a group called the National Policy Institute. Uh, and this is a very innocuous name for an organization that you know it seems very much like a white you know white nash uh, white supremacist you know sort of far right group, and it's led by Richard Spencer, who's the fellow who you know sort of coined the alt right and so on. And if you remember, he's the guy that got punched in that video, right? He got like punched, yes, and Pepe didn't protect like, him. He was actually wearing a Pepe badge at the time, and it it it, it, it didn't protect him <laughs> oh, from the Antifa. Great. But what had happened is that. They they had their annual meeting shortly after Trump's election, and at the beginning of it, um, Spencer declaimed to you know the crowd that you know we made this possible, we willed this to happen, we dreamed Trump into the presidency, and so on and so on and so on, and this got and, you know and, and they they responded with you know the Hitler salutes or Roman salutes or whatever you want to call them and so on and so on, and this got picked up by a fellow named Harvey Bishop. Um, who writes about new thought, uh, you know, new thought and sort of mental science and uh, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and in his blog, he, he, he said, oh, it looks like uh, the alt-right are starting to use sort of, you know, mental science uh, tactics in order to, uh, you know, push their, their politics. And what he meant by that is that the whole idea of new thought and mental science and positive thinking is that, you know, through, through positive thinking, through, you know, a very, really intense and, and, and concentrated um, focusing of your mind and your imagination very vividly on what you want to happen, it, it, it will take place. And, you know, this is, this, this goes back to the late, the mid uh, 19th century with you know christian science and things of that sort and it, it and that's it, the secret yeah yeah I'm saying, yes, like it, it, yes yeah and most most recently it got a new lease on life through through the well-known secret and 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 all of that but it it, it, it seemed to be that uh, these bad people or the dark, the dark side you know was using these sorts of tactics <clears throat> and um so uh i you know i it was interested in that and then um what the story seemed to be was that um, they seemed to be using a kind of darker or more aggressive variant of uh, kind of new thought, which uh, we call chaos magic. Now, what's chaos magic? Ma- chaos magic is basically good old magic, but but you don't stick to the traditional, you know, uh, sigils and signs and apparatus and all that—the magical circle and the weapons and the usual kind of ceremony and ritual—you basically make use of whatever is at hand. It's, it's in some ways, it's on the same principle as sort of found art. Mm. You know, when someone finds some something in the street, they pick it up and they put it in a box or on a pedestal, and suddenly it's an art object or something well, like that. So, same, 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 right. they, same they, kind they of thing with kind of magic. So, these these all different sorts of things you can use, and it frees you up, and it's a, it's about you know your own your own creativity and and um, you know your own sort of imagination and your own ingenuity and so on. Um, and in addition to that, this. That, that kind of practice, you know, I think it has its roots in the late 70s and then um, into the 80s. But then the traditional sort of medium in which the magician works is the imagine, the will and the imagination. Um, you know, and this was the old kind of uh, technique of the new thought. You focus on, you know, what you want to make happen very vividly in your mind and you project that out into the world and so on. But in the new techno world, this, the internet has become um, kind of this new medium in which um, these things can take place. Ah. So if you kind of think of the internet as an exteriorized imagination, and that's how I, I tend to think of it. So the, it's, it's kind of the collective exteriorized imagination now. 
Um, and it's just, and it's constant, you know, or whatever, you know, it's not even whatever you want to call that world now, the cyber world or whatever, but it's something that's constant. It's all the time. And what we're all plugged in all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, okay. So that, that's kind of the background. And so what seemed to the, the steps that kind of led to, uh, Spencer claiming that you know the alt right had wished or willed Trump into office uh, <clears throat> was that um, there were these um, so, uh, kind of uh, online gaming kind of addicts uh, and they were all plugged into 4chan and if you know what 4chan is this you know this kind of chat space or whatever you know a, 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 a board space and kind the of thing of the internet and and they were posting um you know people get they get into their uh, nerdy um you know uh kind of interests and all that sort of thing and what seemed to be happening is that there was a something called bane posting there was there was a thread about the character Bane from Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. And some people really into this and they kept posting the opening kind of scene when he's on the, on the plane and it's uh, ostensibly he's being transported somewhere, but actually he's in charge and he's in control and, you know, determining everything and so on and so on. And what they started to see, and it, and it sounds really strange and morbid was that soon after, or not too long after they would started this thread, this is when you had the the, the tragic uh, German wings um, uh, flight that crashed um, in in the in the Alps, um, and uh, this is when the pilot you know oh, yeah. flew oh, right. you know flew the plane uh, crashed on purpose, and they started to see all these kind of uh, uh, sim- similarities, uh, sort of coincidences to the scene from the film that they were posting, and so there's one of the towns that was near where the crash took place was called Bain. And one of the, um, the investigators of the crash, his name was Bruce Robin. And obviously Bruce Wayne is Batman's, you know, and Robin's his sidekick. And then the pilot crashed the plane on purpose and so on and so on. So they started thinking, wow, you know, are we making this happen? You know, is by posting all this stuff on the net, are we starting to affect reality? So somehow is the internet, this this um, alternate reality of the internet starting to affect you know real reality and it's on the same principle uh well people started calling this synchro mysticism but it's on the same principle as jung's ideas of synchronicity which is fundamentally when something happening in your mind and something happening in the outer world you know there's a there's a, uh, a direct directly deeply meaningful you know connection between them and you think oh my god you know it's just one of these fantastical meaningful coincidences and um so <clears throat> if, you, if you think of it this way you know what unlike vegas you know what happens in the mind doesn't stay there so <laughs> likewise for the internet what happens on the internet doesn't stay there so people these people are starting to think that somehow by posting these things they were affecting the outer world in the same way that somehow in some way either the mind or some way the, these synchronicities happen and so the next step is, okay, can we do this on purpose? If this just happened by chance, we just discovered that this was taking place. Now can we use this for some way? And I guess this is where Pepe uh, hops into the picture, um, as it were, is that um, he got appropriated by the alt-right and pro-Trump people and you know, a variety of other kind of um, – whatever you want to call it, these kind of uh, cyber guerrillas uh, on, 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 you know, on the internet. And uh, from being a kind of innocuous, right. just kind of cartoon character, he started to become this kind of um, 
they took him on as what in magic you would call a sigil. It's a symbol, an image that can become charged with sort of magical energy, with your the, your, the magician's will and the magician's intention and his imagination. And their will and intention was to put Trump in the White House. And so they kept posting and posting all of these peppy, you know, memes of peppy. And it became known as meme magic. And so you kept sort of posting stuff on the internet, Pepe doing this, Pepe doing that, mostly Pepe, you know, being associated with Trump. And he's, he's, he's part of the deplorables. If you remember that, that mean that they even gave, they even gave Pepe the, yeah, and he's there and, or he's with him and all that. And so the idea was that through doing this, you know, and, um, somehow we were going to affect the collective consciousness the collective imagination and and we would and see and the other side of that it gets very strange because the other side of that is in a way so if you're having you're having the this you're having the online world let's say you know the uh, affecting the real world but then trump himself is a kind of unreal character who's stepping into reality because he started you know uh, he, he he was for years uh, a reality television figure so uh, right. so there there's it gets a, it, all these kind of things kind of uh, tie into each other, yeah. and so the whole idea of post-truth and alternative fact, and the fascination we have with reality television. I mean, what's the most popular thing on television today? Reality, right? So-called right. It's, it's it's singing shows and people like people living in the together. It's it's the Bachelor where we we are synthesizing love on television. It's there. There's a program here called Gogglebox, and it's it's a television program about people watching television. <laughs> <laughs> and what they watch on television is other real life people well, on television shows. So there's all it's it's like this mirror, you know, this right. kind of mirror and mirror and mirror and mirror. It's like the represented world becomes more and more, you know, re-represented and all that. And it's, it seems to be this kind of exchange. And so in some ways, it's the same kind of exchange that we're talking about between the mind and reality, between the internet and reality. Now it's between reality and, and television, where you know, the barrier that at one point was a bit more firm. And and um, you know, uh, uh, solid has become very porous, mm, permeable. And permeable, and these different whatever you want to call them levels of re- I don't know what you want to call it kinds of reality. You know, they seem to be s- slipping in and out of each other, and um, it's happening in the states with Trump and that. And uh, p- uh, part of the book, uh, and uh, and um, it's it led to a book I'm researching now is that it's been happening in Russia for you know. Uh, a longer time, you know, I mean, uh, Putin's had had in place a kind of official reality um, that he was in control of, you know, through the media and all that for, you know, a very, very long time. That was always the thing about the the Russian media, even back in the Soviet days, like the name of the paper was Pravda, right? The truth. And that was the the government run paper is going to tell you the truth. Mm. Now, one more question, Gary, about symbology. And this is just something I I was thinking about as you were talking. There's a book by a guy named uh, Chuck Palahniuk Hmm. Uh, the guy who wrote Fight Club, he wrote a book called Lullaby. And the idea behind Lullaby is that, uh, you know, we take all these ancient, you know, he he was looking at like toilet paper that had these like sacred ancient Native American symbols on them. And he just says how we, uh, you know, appropriate, you know, as, as time goes on and cultures change, you appropriate the things of the old and then you kind of make it like, like mm-hmm. you were talking about in your loft with the Satanism and the kitschiness and things yeah. like that. You just put it up because like, hey, that's a cool poster. <laughs> it's like how, you know, Allison yes. used to draw anarchy symbols on things, right? And no, my you and my you my name really does start with A. So one anarchist, to write your name with the anarchy symbol. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I think you're right. You know, it's just it's just kind of it's it's kind of like a cultural 
well, the, the, kind of like the way I, I, I tend to see it is that this kind of postmodern world we're in now, where it's all it's all these images, it's all these symbols, right. and they're all displaced. You can pick them up and put them down anywhere. It's kind of like if you think of like a river at, and and at 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 the sort of you know it silts up over time, and the delta extends. But all the silt that's collected by the river going, you know, to to the sea, it creates this delta that's made up all the silt. And I just that's kind of like where we are now. Like all this kind of stuff is kind of just backed up <laughs> and and it's sp- spreading out or spreading out around us, and we can kind of pick and choose. And it's you know, it, it, it's to to remember correctly, to remember well. And uh, is something I think is is also you know increasingly becoming a, a lost art. As a student of the tradition, though, is there anything in you know the, of the Western esoteric tradition? Is there any symbol you've seen in any kind of like on a wallpaper or even in some kind of innocuous thing that you were like, oh my god, I can't believe they used the death symbol for this? You see, I mean, there's a lot of fashion, occult. Fa- I don't know if it's in the states, but here in London, there is a kind of occult fashion in uh, you know different uh, designers and things like that. You know, the Tree of Life or um, zodiacal signs and um you know the eye in the pyramid all this kind of stuff it gets picked up and again precisely because we were talking about before celebrities doing it and you know music people or whatever they do it and so uh what's his that fellow jay-z had his own line of clothing i think that had all these kind of illuminati images on it and stuff right. like that so um yeah it just it kind of in some ways it's sort of oh my god you know it's nothing sacred yeah, it's but then it, it, the truth is the truth is no no uh, yes, nothing is sacred mm-hmm. because nothing is, escapes that kind of thing. I mean, um, uh, I mean, I, I tell you something. I was surprised that not not seeing this Easter because it fell on April Fool's Day. Um, I I thought I would see a lot of images of kind of you know um, Christ saying just fooling. You know, <laughs> I really am dead. I mean, I'm I'm sorry I thought that, but I thought I'm sure there's going to be something like that. But I was surprised I didn't see it or something like that. You could have um, started a meme, but, Gary. Um, <laughs> you you could have started that meme. <laughs> I know, but yeah, I, I, I didn't right, want right, to. Right, I know. Because I, 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 mean, I, I try to keep something yes. sacred. I mean, not necessarily, you know, Christian iconography, which I don't have anything against. And uh, But it, it's just that, and you know, and each generation kind of does that. You know, the things that frightened or, you know, an earlier generation considered really important, the next generation thinks, oh my God, what were they all worked up about? You know, and I, I think that's, true in general of our kind of postmodern time if you the, the kinds of um you know the sort of existential questions that uh really concerned uh say you know the existentialists in the 1940s and 50s and all that you know what's the meaning of life and the burden of freedom and all that it's, it's kind of like oh that's no biggie you know it's like no big deal today mm-hmm. we, we kind of live in the whatever um kind of and that you know the chickens are coming home to roost because that kind of sense of nothing really matters yeah. has allowed for you know what's taking place in the world in, in politics. You know, uh, it's it's allowed. Okay, if, if that's the case, then there's nothing to stop cynical um, people who can take advantage of that situation and use it for their own purposes. And so, to go back to the Dark Knight real quick, Gary, like just before you get to the next question, I like that you brought that up at the end. The idea that nothing matters because that that's the message mm-hmm. of the before the, yeah, the yeah. whole Bane movie or whatever. There's the movie about the Joker and yeah. Michael Caine as Alfred has that long speech about how they were trying to hunt that guy and yeah, and, exactly, and some yeah. some yeah. men just want to watch the world burn. And that seems like what that's what's behind a lot of the uh, well political movements mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right, and uh, I, I think there's, uh, it, it, as you say, it, 
there, there, there are there are resentment and uh, desires, whatever you want to call it, angers at work that are not they're, they're not going to be amenable to any kind of rationalization, you know, rational understanding or re- uh, be open to reason and try to argue it out. And uh, again, if you look at you know, everyone knows that Trump lies. Everyone knows that there's a there's a very interesting essay um, that I referred to in the book about Trump uh, uh, Trump and bullshit. And the difference between a liar and a bullshit, a liar wants to convince you of something and he's afraid if he's found out and he'll be afraid if you find out the truth. The bullshitter doesn't care if you find out the truth or not. He wants to impress right then and there when he's talking. And and so so Trump doesn't care. And so the, the, it, all, all these attempts to sort of show, oh, he's lying or you know he has no integrity and he's not honest, that doesn't matter to him. And again, that's because what you're saying, it, it, these things don't matter anymore. We've kind of sh- we've kind of come to the realization that uh, they're just not as unassailable, you know, uh, 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 as we thought they were. And yeah, the whole idea that you know there are some uh, minds and psyches out there that. Uh, they they don't necessarily have any rational aim in mind. <laughs> they just yeah. they just want to cause mayhem and cause uh, chaos and constru- uh, destruction. And that's in some ways tying into a kind of um, uh, apocalyptic is a bit you know overused word, but there is a kind of sensibility of that where I do feel there's there's a hovering. Uh, expectancy of something to ha- something is going like to some happen. terrible tragedy, yeah. like a death what? wish. Some, some, yeah, either some climate-related thing or some political kind of thing or something like that. And in the book, I say that you know a lot of people have been waiting for the singularity, and I think Trump, Trump is the singularity. Trump's the singularity that's changed everything. Um, it, it's completely no one expected it, and now you know, as I said, the whole idea of truth and reality and Every, everything else that we we built a kind of stable you know world order on has become you know very unstable now. Well, Gary, help us. And, uh, <laughs> how do? How, well, I am doing what I can. I know, I'm doing what I can. How um, do we? Um, well, how do we get to? I, I think we need practical. to understand. I think we need to yeah. understand the situation. You know, you know, it sounds pessimistic, but I think it's better if we no, understand, understand the situation because then we know what we have to do. Um, and it gets back to the imagination, you know. If it is, if it is, if it is true, if it is true in any way that this kind of new thought, mental science, power, positive thinking, chaos, magic, whatever you want, if in any way, you know, the mind can directly influence reality, and some of the great minds of the Western culture yes. have said that as much, you know. Um, Yates said, you know, uh, be careful of what, you know, what, Yates said, um, you know, what, what is, what is, what is, what is something, what, what is thought in the, in the imagination will work itself out in the, you know, in, in your everyday life. And, uh, Goethe, you know, be careful what you wish for, you'll get it in middle age. And, you know, there's, there's all these kinds of warnings about, you know, you know it, it sounds like from our scientific point of view, the most ridiculous kind of thing. If only the world was that easy, you know, whatever I thought about and wanted to happen would happen. Um, we all know it's not like that in that way, but in, th- th- does seem to be, okay, if you, if you step out of that kind of certainty and then you, you look at a variety of different philosophies and so on and so on, there does seem to be some way in which, well, why, are, why is there all these warnings yeah. about this? <laughs> if it's something that, you know, it doesn't, it, 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 it's impossible. Because, and um, no, yeah. I'm, and you know, there's all different ways. I mean, I, I, I think it, this is why in the end of 
my book Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, um, and that's part of the knowledge of the imagination, knowing that it isn't just in your head. It's right. something and that, there's a responsibility to it. There's a responsibility for it. Yes, I, I agree. And I think there is something that, you know, uh, we, we have to look at that because um, – you know, the, the general idea is that, okay, well, if, if we've been burdened by this kind of reductive, constrained, scientific way of looking at things, then what we need is a lot more imagination. But but, but it, we don't need – the answer to that isn't anything goes, you know, it, it, from kind of no imagination to nothing but imagination, put it that sense of anything goes that's that that's just a pendulum swing from one side to the other right and that's kind of what we've seen happening and uh you know so so i'm interested in in where we go from here because you know in your books you talked about cosmic consciousness you talked about this responsibility of the imagination you talked about you know the duality of the two human needs you know um the the uh quantitative and the qualitative you know like how do we get to that wholeness and, you know, how do we move forward and in, in, you know, responsibility? What would you say? Uh, that was a good question. So a, a lot of, a lot of brilliant men and women have been working on that for a, a long time. And, um, there isn't one, I, well, I, I think there's a general trend. I think the general idea is to somehow integrate the, um, these two sides of ourselves, which are both of them are absolutely necessary. And that's what I mean. That's why we, we tend to swing from one to the other and there are occasional, brief times when, you know, uh, the, the two are kind of together uh, at one. The pendulum is in the middle and um, it's not stopped, but it somehow can maintain that that middle point. And, um, right, it's like integrated. Sorry? Integrated, to integrate the two. Yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, that, how should we say, there's no secret of what to do. There's, we have a whole tradition about this. It's understanding that that's what that tradition is about, I would say. And that's one of the things I tried to, in my book, Secret Teachers of the Western World, I, I use the um, uh, the kind of lens of split brain um, psychology uh, as it's been rebooted by Ian McGilchrist in this this absolutely marvelous book called The Master and His Emissary, where you know he ta- he takes the, the the whole idea of the differences between the right and left brain, which had sort of fallen out of favor um, from most you know, mainstream neuroscientists. And he restarts it, but in a different way. It's not that they necessarily do different things, it's how they do them. And they do them in, they do them in very different ways. The brains, both sides of the brain do this, mostly the same things, but how they do it is very different. And we've been mostly focused on um, how the left brain operates, which is about analyzing things and getting very explicit knowledge um, and breaking things up into bits and pieces so that we can manipulate them and control them. We need to be able to do that because that's how we survive. But the other side is about a more holistic, uh, a fuzzy kind of unifying perception of things where you, it, it's, it's felt uh, and it can't be explicitly um, described in the same way that you can explicitly describe kind of you know left brain knowledge, but it's that right brain kind of way of or it's it's when the two come together really that that's when you really have the kind of moments of cosmic consciousness let's say or moments of, of wakefulness or moments of more vivid life and all that and um, there's lots of there's all you know we have many many traditions about that I, I I think I think at this point it's it's helpful to kind of understand what some of the theory behind it might be in terms of, okay, yes, I can understand that in terms of my actual the psychology of uh, human psychology. And, uh, uh, um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, perhaps um, one of the philosophers that's been very influential um, in my work is uh, 
a fellow named Gene Gepser, um, who was uh, born in Germany in the early 20th century. And then um, uh, he later, um, basically escaping from you know Nazis and all that, wound up in Switzerland. And um, he wrote a fantastic book called The Ever-Present Origin which is um, one of the most magisterial works of trying to understand the, the, the entirety of sort of the human consciousness from the earliest, you know, sort of uh, proto-human, you know, beginnings to, you know, for him, contemporary time. He died in the early 70s. But um, he talks about how what has been happening in the West, say, throughout the 20th century and in, in uh, increasing and becoming more and more the case is that we're going through what he calls the breakdown of the mental rational structure of consciousness. And this was, this was the, this has been sort of the structure of consciousness that's been dominant with us, say, since the, you know, going back to the Greeks, this rational analytical, you know, leading to the scientific and all that. And, you know, he has no illusions about the necessity and the value and the importance of all that. Um, but much in the same way that McGilchrist um, sees that it, it, we've, in some ways, overemphasized that to the exclusion of this other, more integrated view. He, he talks about the next structure of consciousness, which we, we can be heading into, there's no guarantee, is what he calls the integral structure. But we have to go through this process of, of the breakup of, of the dominant one now. And I, it strikes me that the whole postmodernism, deconstructionism, post-truth, alternative fact, the ambiguity about reality, uh, the different ways in which the Western scientific sort of mainstream intellectual tradition has been kind of, uh, you know, criticized within itself and then from, you know, people outside, you know, even even myself, even people interested in the occult and all that, you know, that we, we have quite a bit of problems with that and all that. So I, I, I think that is what's happening now. And I, I, in a way, you sort of have to go through this kind of dark night of the soul to a certain extent um, at this period. But there's no guarantees. and it's not, it's not a picnic. And I think each of us has to work very hard in order to kind of understand what's happening. And, 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 and then, and, you know, in all different ways to try and find some way to experience this more integral kind of... Because at the same time, I think it happens to us. We, we, we do experience this. Again, it's something that... It's not, it's not something necessarily we have to work meditating, you know, six hours a day in order to achieve. It's something that is part of our experience now, except that we're not aware that that's what it is. Right. Yeah. And we're experiencing this breakdown right now, as you said. And so the potential is to have a glorious new dawn. And um, so, so I have a, a yes, golden yes. dawn, you yes, might say. Yes, a golden dawn. That's right. Good one, Mike. So um, I have a question from uh, paraanthropologist Dr. Jack Hunter. He's the author of the upcoming book, Engaging oh. the Anom Anomalous, by, uh, published by our friend uh, Robbie Graham's August Night Books. And he asks, how can an awareness and understanding of esoteric philosophy aid us in tackling the eco-crisis? And he said, does Western esoteric philosophy have a practical application in this regard? Well, there's, uh, there's, well, um, there's two ways to answer that question. I mean, not, not, not all, there isn't one esoteric philosophy. It's, it's made up of, you know, it's a kind of a body of knowledge, uh, traditions of different, different backgrounds. Um, there's different ones of different sort of, uh, ideas about our relationship to nature. I mean, there, there's some that have a very, uh, sort of nature mysticism, you know, or the whole notion that, um, we 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 somehow participate with the outer world you know we're not, we're not completely set off from it um but others have a more strict kind of you know 
uh, the human spirit is something different than the natural world. We're not necessarily antagonistic to it, but we know we 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 we're some there's some part of us that can't be explained or accommodated purely, you know, through natural kinds of means. So, but then again, there's a the whole idea of like what 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 is nature? I mean, I, I would think most esotericists uh, accept the idea of a kind of a living nature as opposed to the mechanical um, view of it. Let's say like that Descartes. is dominant um, yeah. you know, from Newton on. Yes, there's a kind. Yes, Descartes and, and yeah. I mean, there's uh, na- nature is something that can, it will respond. We 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 have we have a participatory relationship with it and a responsive relationship with it. So, um, uh, and this is something that I, I do look at in lost knowledge yeah. of, of the imagination and ways in which the imagination itself is a way in which we can um, participate. You know, become aware of our participatory relationship to the natural world and and how you know we can actually you know feel that more vividly so um but i i i do think it is part of the sort of spiritual philosophy uh and this is something that i, I talk about in another book called yes. caretakers of the cosmos which is about our, our responsibility to the natural world and and the broader you know uh, cosmos and in, in that sense is that um you know, if 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 you're tending the garden, you, you're not a flower in it. You know, you have to you have to be a kind of in a meta position to be able to take care of the garden. You know, you 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 can't be one of the flowers in it, but you tend them, you take care of them, you you you, you revere them, and they're beautiful and all that, and you know you know how important they are. Um, but you you have to somehow have some sep- separation. The same situation is with you know children. If you're taking care of your children, you can't be a child yourself. So um, you have to have a kind of position of responsibility, which I would say necessitates a certain distance from. So we can't be completely embedded in nature. And and I, I think there is something in us that's something more, for sake of a better word. You know, it's kind of you've called the spiritual, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's something that we we're aware that we we're sort of we're occupants of two worlds, inhabitants of two worlds. You know, there's the natural world, the, co- the cosmic world that we're part of, but there's also this inner world. And that's that's one of the meanings of the esoteric tradition. Esoteric means inner. And uh, it's inner in the sense, it's the inner teachings of, you know, the great religions like Gnosticism is sort of inner Christianity and Kabbalah is kind of inner Judaism and things of that sort. But there's also the inner, our own in, inner inner world, our own interior um, area. And as I say in Lost Knowledge of the Imagination and other books, um, many people who have explored, gone into that interior, taken that journey, they discovered an entire universe inside themselves in the sense that, um, well, it's it's as Jung talks about when he, he, in his Red Book, when he talks about, he went through this, you know, crisis after um, his falling out with Freud, and um, he, you know, felt that he was going mad. He couldn't stop thinking and, about sex. Uh, <laughs> well, he, <laughs> well I, I, I think he had a hard time stopping thinking about that, whether he was involved with Freud or not. But uh, but he, he, he sort of <laughs> let himself go once and, and let himself get carried away by these fantasies that he was keep trying to fend off for fear he was going mad. And that he discovered by doing that, that he had somehow entered this, this world that existed inside himself. In, what we would say inside his own mind. Oh yeah, and through hypnagogia, right? We're, 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 I'm sorry. Hypnagogia. You talked about that as well. Oh yeah, well that, well that, well that, that's, well that, well yeah. He, this is something that he practiced, and um, that is a well. This, this is a good practice, you know. Uh, but I'll, I'll get to that one second. The other thing I'm going to say is that he 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 realized there was a whole in, inner terrain, a whole inner geography, and also inhabitants of this world that had nothing to do with him. 
and he, he, he meets this kind of wise old man that was called Philemon, who became this kind of inner guru for him. And he said, your mistake is that you think your thoughts are your own. But your thoughts are like the flowers and the animals in the forest. You go out into the forest, you're sharing the forest with them. That you, you know, they're not you, yours. Just like this inner inner forest you've entered, the beings and terrain and flora and fauna you encounter, they're not just subjectively yours that you're making. You, you are sharing it with them. And so Jung came to understand that they were living intelligences inside his own mind, which sounds like he was crazy and all that. Um, but yeah, hypnagogia is this way in which we, that, that's, that's one practice that we can actually, anyone can do this um, to become aware of, of this inner world and watch, watch it at work and, 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 and watch its processes. And uh, hypnagogia is basically, uh, it, it's this condition of being in between sleep and waking. So it happens two times a day when you're going to sleep at night, when you're waking up in the morning. Uh, and peop, there, there are different methods of being able to maintain that in-between state. And if you can't do that, you can sort of watch dreams take place, but you're still wide awake yeah. and you're still aware of your surroundings. You're, you're aware that you're in the room, which it makes it different than a dream because if you're in a dream, you're completely immersed in the dream. And then you often forget, you, you don't know it's a dream, un, un, unless you're lucky enough to have a lucid dream in which you wake up within it and you're, you're aware that you're dreaming. But hypnagogia is the other way around, whereas lucid dreaming is you're, you're awake while you're dreaming, and hypnagogia, you're dreaming while you're awake. Yeah. So you, you, you can stay awake, but you can watch these visions take place before you. And Jung was someone who was very good at that, Swedenborg, Rudolf Steiner, P.D. Uspensky. It, it's actually a central it goes under different names, but that's the kind of clinical name of it. But it's a central practice in, in all of these kind of you know, mystical occult philosophies. It's a way of actually entering into this inner inner world. Yeah, I wonder if Edgar Casey, you know, might have been another one. Oh, he, he may very well, yeah. I mean, he, he went into trans states and things of that sort. So, so uh, Fred Fogarty of uh, HawaiiParacon.com, he asks, regarding thought forms, what is the difference between manifesting something using the power of imagination versus the falseness of priming? Priming being that psychological phenomenon where... Uh, having been exposed to a word or idea, it influences our experiences later. So how can we know the difference between manifesting and just, you know, being primed for something? Oh uh, God, I don't know. <laughs> Tell you the truth. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I, 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 I can only imagine the proof is in the put, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. So if there is something that you've want to happen and you, you follow the steps um, I, I don't know. I, I haven't practiced a great deal of it myself, you know, uh, so I, I, I can't say whether from personal experience it works. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you might, okay. Are you, are you saying, um, you may think that you've want this thing to happen and, and, but you're somehow you're psychologically, well, I, I, like I you in know, ghosts, for I example, know. like people like experience something strange, you know, cause, um, Mike and I are both uh, paranormal investigators. So, you know, people will come to you, present with, you know, stories of strange things that happen, but then they they tend to lump like everything into one basket then uh, under that umbrella of strange experience. And then it makes it hard to piece out, well, you know, was there any actual uh, weirdness in there in the first place? Or is it just somebody, you know, watching too much ghost, you know, too many episodes of ghost adventures? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I guess, yeah, I, I guess each case, you know, you have to sort of keep that in, you know, in mind and, and, and uh, you know, 
uh, while you're sort of uh, assessing its value. I, I know for myself, put it this way, I'm firmly convinced um, that uh, I have had precognitive dreams. Um, so I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've noted them down and in, in, uh, I, I started, you know, writing them down in books, reporting them in, in 1980. And um, from then, the first few years, I started experimenting with this or, you know, observing it. Uh, I have quite a few notebooks full of them. And then gradually since then, over the years, every now and then I'll, you know, because I still have them. I don't know how they happen, but I do know it's a phenomenon that takes yeah, place. Yeah, and so synchronicity and, is as well. Are there moments that, of great importance for you or is it just like, because I think I've had a couple of experiences. No, like no, 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 no. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just, well... No, it's it's just something that I notice. It's it's never like you know, uh, it's it's never the winner at Aqueduct, you know, <laughs> something like that. It's it's never it's never like I'm gonna. Although in some, uh, in terms of my own, let's say, spiritual and psychological development, there have been ones that have been very meaningful, like that. So they haven't been, you know, I know, you know, if if I invest tomorrow in this stock, I'm going to make a lot of money. It's not like that. But I've have had examples where. I've kind of had a pre-echo of something that was about to happen, and it's allowed me to be aware in that moment because I can think, oh, my God, this is what I dreamt. Yeah. And in the, in the dream, you know, it, it led to an argument or some negative, you know, outcome. But because I remembered having the dream, to put it in a strange way, remembering the dream woke me up for a moment with while well, I was going through, you know, the same happening that had happened in the dream and I was able to sort of, you know, not get angry or, or something along those yeah. lines. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but that happens sometimes. But mostly it's just, it's inconsequential kind of things. I think you're giving us, um, you know, another practical thing that we can do here, which is journaling. Oh, write down your yeah, dreams. Yeah, journaling, like journal your yep. dreams, journal your synchronicities well, or any oh, yeah. insights absolutely. that and come to you unbidden or even bidden. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and any, any, yep, and any synchronicities, any, any hunches that come true. I mean, things like that. I've, I've, I've had that, you know. And so, uh, so it's like you're doing, you're, 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 um, having that state then, yeah. where you have those two sides of the human needs, mm -mm. where you, you know, you're letting, you're letting your imagination run, yeah. and then you're also being more analytical about it, just you know, writing it down. Well, write it down, you know, and it's there, and then, and, and then you can be analytical about it later yeah. too when you look back. Well, it's also that you can accumulate, you know, a lot of material, right? Um, that, that can, that, you, can that, yeah, and you can look over over time, and, and then you can see. Well, I, I know science tells me that this can't happen, but uh, you know, it, it has. You know, um, uh, here's the evidence for it. And unless you're going to say to yourself, "Well, I, I must be completely fooled by all of this," or yeah. you know, or, or or you can uh, you can let Darren Brown explain it to you in terms of <laughs> some you know well you you know whatever you've been manipulated. I, I just think well, yeah. reality is such that these things happen, and so so and so and and, and I'm going to say the next step from that is like okay, how must reality be if indeed these things do take place? And so it seems to me like well our standard ideas about time, which are very serviceable in work, you know, most of the time, they're not the absolute idea about time and, and likewise about consciousness and all these kinds of things. So, you know, uh, uh, allowing the experience to, uh, allowing the anomaly to, to actually be an anomaly and not to try to explain it away in terms of, you know, what we think we know already, 
that 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 extends that extends the frontier of your knowledge and extends the frontier of your experience and that that's what it's about well and i tell you if the people that are interested in any more about lucid dreaming we have a whole episode about it episode 2 mm. we go into some practical ways that you guys can lucidly dream and we even have a song called hypnagaja uh, that <laughs> that's featured in that one that's about that state between waking and dreaming so gary I want to thank you for your time we've uh, we're, we're about to run out of time here and I just had one more question uh, for everybody so a lot of people listening to this podcast are not as deep into the occult and stuff like that and that, that kind of esotericism that we are. I mean, we've talked about Colin Wilson before, mm-hmm. but mostly in the form of space vampires because oh, right. we, were, we discussed oh, yeah. the death of Toby Hooper oh, and book. wanted to yeah. talk about his influences. Yeah. Um, but for people who are getting into this and you who want to start integrating uh, that left and right side, mm. that imagination and that reality-based thinking, because we, we all know that we need both of those mm. in order to self-actualize, right? We need, we need yes. both of those sides. What would you recommend as a good way to st- – we were talking about being a parent before – you know, when you were talking, maybe when you were bringing your your children up in a spiritual as well as a materialist tradition, what were the kind of things you did to do that to start them out? Well, uh, sadly, my sons have have no interest in any of this stuff whatsoever, uh, so <laughs> I wasn't able to be a very good guide for them for that. Um, but I mean, there's a, there's a there's a huge amount of material out there. Um, to you know, uh, discover and start reading. Um, What's a good one hundred and one text for people uh, who, who might like like young might blow them away? Like, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. Like a, well, like um, a kids' guide to young. No, no, I'm trying to think. The young's a bit difficult to start with himself, but uh, well, I mean, you might. It, I mean, the thing that got me going was you know uh, Colin Wilson's work, and um, he has a book called um, Super Consciousness, uh, which is one of the last things um, he he wrote, and it's kind of a it's sort of his how to as it were, a kind of DIY uh, approach to understanding consciousness and being able to generate these more vivid states, these integrated states. And it's a short book. Actually, I taught a, I taught a course on it um, uh, for the California Institute of Integral Studies, an online course a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, he, he writes very well. He writes very clearly. And um, it'll give you, you know, a fundamental idea about, you know, how, how he approaches these things. Um, and um, it's, I'm trying to think in terms of actually sort of, well, if you want to get a good, I mean, I, I can't, you know, I can just say my own book, you know, it's a, I'm sorry yeah. to give my own, my own plug, but no, no, uh, please my, do. my book, you know, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, it's a short book and it's, it's an overview, pretty much things we've been talking about. Um, it doesn't give you sort of, practices to do but it's a way of understanding so and i i think that's very important i i, I think we re- I, I think in some ways the i should say the response or the reaction to uh the kind of uh restrictions and constraints of you know the western mainstream intellectual kind of tradition uh which is about ideas and theory and abstract and all you know, reasoning and all that kind of thing. The reaction to that went very much into experience and very much into practice. And, you know, uh, it's not about ideas, it's about doing and that kind of thing. And that's true. But I do think you do need to have some idea of what you're doing. Um, you can get the experience, but to understand what the experience means in, in, a, in, a, in a broader context and not just, you know, like people take, you know, psychedelics or something else and they have a incredible cosmic conscious experience and then they just you know next week they're doing exactly the same thing that they were doing so you can have the experience but you need to sort of be able to translate the experience into some kind of knowledge that that actually changes how you understand things and that's what i try to do in the book is to kind of give a kind of baseline kind of 
idea like well what is taking place like what what, what what's taking place in our history you know throughout you know western history what's taking place in ourselves now because we're we're a product of that of that kind of history and i think we're at a very good place in order to bring about some of this integration because on like never before there's so much material available i mean there's a lot of rubbish too so you need to practice discrimination but there's an enormous amount of material available on the net and if anyone is really serious about this they'll they'll find their way they'll find their way to something and obviously this is the time to start thinking positive mm. things because we know that there's people on the other side thinking negative <laughs> things well they're thinking very so. positively about some things that we might consider negative so well That's you know true. i just want to say i want I'll, I'll meet you at the hypnagogo yay <laughs> <laughs> i'll see you there gary well, <laughs> so for people who want to pick up Gary's books, make sure you check out the show notes for this episode, othersidepodcast.com slash 191. That's where you're going to find the show notes for this this episode, and you're going to be able to pick up Gary's books, and you're going to be able to, that, you know, the lost knowledge of the imagination. You're going to be able to take a look at that and, and go right there and grab it. I'd recommend it. I'd also recommend Secret History of Consciousness because Allison got that for me for a gift I, you know, a long time ago, and that was one of the things that really opened my mind to a lot of this stuff. So, uh, Gary, next time you have a book or next time we will have to chat with you again because it's really been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. I look forward to that. Thank you so much, Gary. My pleasure. Well, I didn't mean to fanboy out there. I think I've kept it pretty cool. <laughs> you did all right, Mike. <laughs> Sometimes I squee a little bit. Uh, but he's just got a lot of cool stories. It's understandable, though. I mean, well, he was there during what I think is the most exciting time in, in rock and roll culture. And yeah. I know that some people would be like, oh, man, that, that, that South and like the Elvis Sun Studios kind of thing, that 1950s Memphis thing is the most exciting time of rock and roll culture. Uh, or you could say 1960s in London with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But I am most interested in the mid-1970s in New York City. It's an exciting time. So that's... that's it was. <laughs> that, right. And, and so that's why I love talking to people who, who was there, who was part of that movement um, yeah. of, of what I think would, would be... Like, if I could go back anywhere, people say like, oh, if you could go back in time, where would you go back? And I, that's where I would go. Cool. What I would do is I would make a duplicate of, some, of somebody there. I would disguise myself as them, kill them, and then live as that person for a while. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's that's what I do if I can go back in time. <laughs> Sounds like a good strategy. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to work, but we're going to give it a try. Anyway, okay. we want to thank Gary for a really fun interview. And yes, and thanks Allison from MilwaukeeGhosts.com for for helping out and Allison organized the interview after I failed through his publicist a couple of times. Allison just took the bull by the horns and said, well, "Why don't I just contact him on Facebook?" And what do you know? There you go. Got to love her. Yeah. Thanks, Allison. Yeah. For. <laughs> For grabbing that rock and roll bull by his horns. Anyway, the song this week is inspired by, actually, one of the people that, when I first read The Secret History of Consciousness, that uh, Gary introduced me to was a woman named Helena Blavatsky. Mm -mm. So they call her Madame Blavatsky. And she's like this Western esoteric writer, con woman, spiritualist, all this stuff at the end of the 19th century. And she writes a book called The Secret Doctrine, which is basically a combination of like the Western thought. So if you take Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and some of their transcendentalist uh, philosophy. And that's the good stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's the classic stuff we all read in high school or whatever. 
And then you combine that with East Indian philosophy. So she went and, and she did a lot of research of the different East Indian philosophers and the Bhagavad Gita and all that kind of stuff. And so she integrates all that into her book, The Secret Doctrine. And the first stanza of The Secret Doctrine is about this, um, and this is a very Hindu idea, the night of the universe, that everything is cyclical and you get to a point where there's our universe as it is now, where we've got, there's things, there's, we're talking, we're living, all that kind of stuff. And then the cycle goes of death and rebirth and the death happens and there's nothing for a while, like the period before the the big bang or the time where they eventually say that the heat death of the universe, where it's all going to end and we're all, we're all just going to be circling around in the cold. And so it's funny because science has its own version so there's a materialist version of this idea, and the idea is the cycle begins again. And this has been this, this East Indian philosophy for thousands of years. And it's called the night of the universe, and uh, just thought that'd be a fun idea for a lullaby, saying, good night, universe. We'll see you again soon. All right. Well, let's give it a listen, huh? All right. So here's a little sunspot doing the night of the universe. Everything will sleep until the morning's light The wheel has come to rest The clock has stopped again You won't need to dream Where there is no pain Open up your perfect eye And it will be a brand new day I say goodnight Universe goodnight Goodnight Universe, good night The sun has faded But the hidden comes to light A blissful empty Freedom from our brain Sparks inside the fire And all links in the chain Until the great breath Brings us to life again I say good night Universe, good for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, 
See you on the other side. Like we said before, if you're part of our awesome Patreon community, we're going to be hanging out Tuesday, April 10th. We'd love to see you. 7.30 Central Time. Definitely join the party. Yeah, so please come and join us for a talk on there. If you can't make that one, we got more of them coming up. And if you don't know what our Patreon community is, those are the people who make See You on the Other Side podcast possible. Yeah. And if you'd like to learn more about it or join that community, you can do that by visiting othersidepodcast.com slash donate. That's right. And we want to give a big special thanks to our Patreon, Ned, yes, who we got to see last week, actually, during our performance in Sauk City. Absolutely. We saw Dr. Ned. We were, we were rocking in Sauk City at the Vintage Brewing Company. And I know we're going to see him again this Friday at the release party in Madison. Yes. Friday the 13th is lucky this year. It's lucky for you guys if you come on down to Madison uh, for the Wonders of the World, Invisible World release party. Uh, and all our Patreons got a special package with that CD coming on the way. You could be part of that cool group too. It's just at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. I'll meet you at the Hypnagogo.